0: all right so my question about the hamburgers you only have one question i have so many questions <laughs> yeah. there's a thousand hamburgers i have at least that many questions for starters how the hell do you get that many hamburgers into the white house you and go salads through the
1: drive through no, right like, you're you, like, like i would like 400 big macs no no that's what uber eats is for they <laughs> deliver from mcdonald's can they
0: get in the white house gate Mm, that's a good. Or does question. Somebody, maybe someone meets, meets them, them at and the,
2: carries the there's hamburgers There's like a dead in. Drop of McDonald's hamburgers.
0: Well, I would not be surprised considering he eats a lot of McDonald's hamburgers. Like there has to be some. Right? Maybe there's hookup. already like there's a, really like a standing a channel, thing. No, right?
1: there's got to be a secret tunnel that just goes oh, directly yeah, exactly. from McDonald's into the White House compound. But there was also Burger King and Wendy's. Right? He got all three. That's true. He okay, did. so but
2: not Chick Fil A.
1: <laughs> that's well, okay. That would
0: have been too controversial. <laughs>
1: But how do you have it your way if you're ordering like 300 at a time? Oh, no onions. God, hold you guys are the so mustard. <laughs> you're very distant from me. I, I want to have man. it my <laughs> way,
2: damn
0: it! I also want to raise a point that perhaps the president did not consider, um, but he does have a catering department three blocks down from the White House in the hotel that he owns,
1: and it's the best.
0: And it's the best. And he
1: said but he, he was paying had, for it himself. He would have had to pay a lot more money I for see. that <laughs> as
2: opposed to okay. The much less money, well, you know. Yeah, eat
0: what you love.
1: I'm just imagining the the Clemson coaches, like after that dinner, being like, "Guys, drink a lot of water. Got to flush it know. all out of the system."
2: The other thing is, like, they're like hours old McDonald's hamburger. Like, I'm not here to like make fun of a Big Mac. Like, it has a time and a place. But like, there has gotta never be hot. Been a fast food hamburger that you're like, yeah, hour and a half, hour and forty five minutes later, we're good to go.
0: Give me some of that. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Raising the Bar edition.
1: We're lowering the bar on White House catering. <laughs> 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 or lowering the bar on
2: the United States Department of Justice. <laughs> Who knows? Or I, guess, the I guess we'll find out.
1: Is going from Whitaker to Bill Barr really lowering the bar? No.
0: <laughs> that, that, you know, that could have been the thing that Bill Barr led with, being like, hey, we got nowhere to go with that. <laughs> How do you think he feels like you're like, well, I've been looking at uh, Mr. Whitaker's resume, and then here's mine.
2: I'm surprised whenever people are like asking, why do you want this job? He basically is like, do you see who the acting attorney general is?
0: <laughs> they're like, Somebody's oh, yeah. got to
2: step up here, guys. And
0: they're like, really, thank you. No, thank you for being here. I am uh, Shane Harris. I'm here in the Jungle Studio with Tamara Kaufman-Whittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey, Shane. Ben is away this Wednesday. I don't know how long he's away, but he's not here. That's also, fine. has
2: not been nominated to be
1: Attorney General. Awesome. <laughs> his, his resume is a little shorter. Although I did Bill see him Barr's. at McDonald's, <laughs>
0: ordering five hundred cheeseburgers. On the show this week, senators question Attorney General nominee Bill Barr mostly over the Mueller probe. Two new stories shed more light on President Trump's troubling relationship with Russia. And the president contemplated pulling out of NATO for real, didn't just like tweet about it, talked about it many times. And we're going to talk about that. Um, Susan, I actually want to start with you. And all honestly, this question I was going to ask you is the one that you actually just raised when it comes to Bill Barr, Um, which is a base like, why in the world would anyone want this job? Being attorney general after the disastrous, you know, tenure of Jeff Sessions I and mean, putting aside the policy, After some speaking,
1: honest loyalty, like, right. After, how could anyone in good conscience?
0: Right. Do you think we learned? I mean, obviously, he probably gave, you know, he, I think he gave some answers. He talked about uh, turning down the president, uh, an offer to be his on his legal defense team because Called he said it
2: being in a meat grinder right sticking his head
0: in the meat grinder didn't want to do that but apparently being attorney general uh, which i would imagine is like many more meat grinders um suited him uh, just fine so
1: it's more like a cheese grater it's more like
0: a cheese exactly slow rasping of the skin <laughs> um so why why does he want this job
2: So the answer that he gave is essentially that he loves the Department of Justice, he's this DOJ institutionalist, and also that he is sort of uniquely positioned to serve this role at this moment because he's older and he's already had this career, and basically that's going to empower him to stand up to the president, defend the rule of law, I think was supposed to be sort of what he intended for us to read in, into Right, the that was statement. implied at best. I think the problem is that the rest of his testimony certainly didn't sound like somebody who was about to sort of ride in and really strongly defend the rule of law in the way that somebody who basically didn't care about the future of their career might be called to. Um, You know, look, I I can't sort of um, psychoanalyze the guy from a distance, but I I don't think it's all that different from a lot of people, sort of decent, law-abiding people who've come in wanting to serve this administration and thinking, I can fix it. I can do this sort of through force of will and intellect and character and personality. I can sort of hold this whole thing together. Nobody's managed to do that. Nobody's managed to uh, emerge unscathed. And so, uh, you know, I I think the, I, I don't think, We necessarily have to wonder what story Bill Barr is telling himself, but sort of whether or not it is at all grounded in reality, considering how many people we've seen go through essentially this exact process.
1: Well, and isn't there also a fundamental question of what the conversation was between him and the White House before he was offered the job what assurances did he ask for, if any? What assurances did he get? What assurances did they ask for? And what assurances did they get? You know, and so what? whatever intentions he may express in front of the committee, there is still that. That's number one. Number two is like, okay, he's an institutionalist, but an institutionalist who believes in a very robust view of executive power. So when the institution in question is finding itself oppressed by the president, that's a different challenge than the typical institutional challenge facing the Justice Department. And it seems to me to, you know, the fact that he's an institutionalist doesn't necessarily reassure me at all in this instance.
0: One thing I also on the idea of, of, you know, being an institutionalist, I mean, he was asked this directly and so you need know, to talk about his fondness for the department. But he also has, you know, weighed in on what he thinks is the propriety of the Mueller probe or at least portions of it. And it was interesting. We know that he'd written this memo, which he sort of voluntarily had shared with the president's team and also given to Rosenstein. And also
1: given to like a dozen other people, it turns out. Yeah, a number
0: of other people. So he's sort of, you know, opining on this as a former guy thinking you might want, you know, benefit of my opinion, which I mean, look, he's a very good lawyer. I mean, maybe they would. But he got questioned about that as well and uh, to the point of – If you really believe that this probe is predicated, or at least this part of the probe is predicated essentially on, you know, a set of false assumptions about what the president's authority are to fire the FBI director, how can you honestly oversee the probe? And Susan, what I was kind of struck by was him saying – Basically, like, yeah, I was just sort of mouthing off. I was in the dark and really trying to almost minimize his hostility that you could, I think, perceive in that memo towards the probe by saying, "Well, I didn't really know what I was talking about." And I found that, and and I was, I was uh, not informed of all of the information. I found that a little bit hard to believe. Like saying, "Oh, I was just being cavalier." This doesn't strike me as someone who is cavalier. He strikes me as somebody who thinks through issues very deeply, and that he probably is hostile to the obstruction of justice component, at least as it was understood you know, before the New York Times story last week, which we'll talk about in the second segment.
2: So I think there's a sense in which it's fair and it's unfair, right? So yes, he was certainly seeking to minimize. He was saying, look, this was a memo that I wrote based on my understanding of one theory of obstruction. I don't have all the underlying facts. Obviously, I was speculating based on media reports. And, you know, basically, this doesn't reflect my uh, my full, complete and informed view. You know, I don't think it's unreasonable for somebody who is outside the government, who's sort of essentially a commentator to say, all kinds of things that then whenever they're actually going to be uh, brought into a role, uh, it's reasonable for them to distance themselves by saying, well, that's sort of my opinion based on, on what I know at the time. Obviously, in my capacity as attorney general, I'm, I'm fulfilling a different role. I'll have access to a different set of facts. I haven't prejudged the outcome, things like that. So I do think to some extent, it is reasonable to allow him to sort of distance himself. You know, that said, I think that there's other sort of indications of statements that he made before that show that I think precisely the type of sort of of, of a bias and, and not a bias that's an area in which, oh, you know, reasonable minds can disagree on uh, a particular statutory theory, right? Lots of reasonable minds might disagree on a statutory theory, regardless of whether or not they think what the president's doing is good or bad or, or any sort of political views. But then um, Peter Baker at the New York Times uh, sort of published this email exchange that he'd had with Barr months earlier, um, in which Barr says uh, essentially that there is a substantially more investigative predicate to investigate the Uranium One scandal um, than the collusion story, you know, that's just not true, right? It's just not something that reasonable minds would disagree on, and so yeah, it's a is,
1: little bit wacky. That makes him look like a crank. Well, yeah. it's
2: the indication of somebody who is occupying the Fox News information ecosystem mm. in a way that I think does begin to become troubling about what views he may have formed and continues to carry with him into office.
0: So let's okay, let's put a pin in that for a second. So I think that's interesting, but I want to go back just one step in this uh, sequence. So okay, we understand he can distance himself now from something that he said at the time, right? And we say, okay, that's fine. We can forgive that. Now you'll get more information. And he even said, I suppose we'll find out if I get this job, what the obstruction investigation was all about. But does it explain that why he did it at the time? Like he clearly must have hoped that this memo was going to have some influence. He went and met with Rod Rosenstein. He gave it to all these people. I mean, I guess what I'm, I'm sort of struggling with, and I don't know if we have the answer from the hearing, is why did you do that at the time? Now, there were some people, I think on the Democratic side, raising the question of whether you were auditioning for the job by doing this. I'm not entirely sure that makes sense, but he was truly trying to have some effect by putting this out there, no? Yeah, and then, of course, it gets leaked
1: Right. Conveniently. Right. So, I mean, given the number of people that he apparently shared it with both inside and outside the government, it can't be that surprising that it leaked well, once he was nominated. I'm saying I
0: think he intended it to, to leak. <laughs>
1: right. But I also think, like, if you are somebody who's a former senior government official with a certain expertise and you live in whatever your ideological sector of the policy community is, right, right? There are lots of people similarly situated who write little memos for people in government saying, here's how I see this issue, or here's what I think you could do about this, or here are some ideas. I mean, that's, that in and of itself is not unusual. I think what's unusual is that somehow the, the role that he was playing as a, as a member of the commentariat, right, got converted into a job offer. That doesn't usually happen. And so that's why I keep coming back to, you know, okay, what was the interaction like? Right? No, I I think that's
2: right. Look, as somebody who, in part, runs a website in which people, you know, opine at length on precisely the kinds of issues that were brought up in that memo, I, I am sympathetic to the idea that you know he's driven both by the combination of ego and intellectual curiosity that causes people to you know um, mouth off on these things, you know, (laughs) write these very long memos and submit them to sort of the powerful people, and so the fact that he wrote it, well, I do think it, um, you know, it's a little bit. Careless, Uh, you know, it's not quite in keeping with this, um, the character he was trying to present of this extraordinarily cautious lawyer. I do think that Tammy's point is the right one, which is that once it was out there and once he obtained this job offer, he didn't appear to be at all concerned either with the notion that that's why he had been selected or with rebutting sort of the optics, right? So so if he comes into the hearing with sort of this cloud over him of, hey, you've been picked because you have these views. I don't think he was somebody who sat at that table and made the statements you would need to make in order to say, I understand that you all think that. Heck, maybe even the president of the United States thinks that. But that's not what I'm going to do as Attorney General because that's not the job of the Attorney General. And and he's gotten a lot of praise for statements that he made that
1: were, that were not that, yeah,
2: contentless, were ambiguous. I thought we saw a really pretty dramatic failure of oversight yesterday, and then a pretty dramatic failure by Senate Democrats.
0: Yeah. So to, to that then, and taking into account that statement about Uranium One, which you're right does situate him in that sort of. Kind of right-wing media echo chamber—the same one that, you know, ultimately you could argue prompted the shutdown by pulling Trump back from <laughs> signing a bill that would have kept the government open. The people
2: want the wall,
0: right? Exactly. So, so he presents as this reasonable person, and of course, he's pressed on what are you going to do about the Mueller probe? And I feel like he gave multiple answers mm-hmm. to this question, and I don't come away being able to say with any, you know, real certainty or authority. Um, he's definitely uh, not going to interfere with the probe. They never really ask him what do you think, you know, what is your definition of interference. So he wouldn't interfere with the probe, but nobody asked him what do you mean by interference? Like, would writing new rules and regulations limiting severely the scope of that probe be interference? He may just say that was guidance and oversight. It's not clear that he thinks that there's going to be a report that's made public, which I mean we've talked about on the podcast before. Like people have a presumption about there being a report that gets issued all of the star report, which may have been a misguided assumption all along. He says, according to the regs, Mueller is just supposed to give me the A G report on what he decided to prosecute and what he declined, and then I can decide whether to write a report. So I, I mean I don't feel like anybody walks away like Respecting rule of law, yes, he can make that clear. A president who would interfere uh, with an investigation or, or hold out pardons as offers a quid pro quo to help himself, yes, that would be a crime. Uh, you know, can the president obstruct justice? I, I think he answered yes to that. But how he's going to actually steward this probe and will we actually see it? fully developed and know everything Bob Mueller found? I don't think you can say that after hearing him.
2: So this is where I think the real failure was, right? The failure to force him to articulate with some specificity. So I think the one thing that he was very, very clear on, and this is an important point, is that he will not carry out an order to fire Bob Mueller without good cause. Now, he didn't articulate what good cause was, but, you know, he was pretty clear that he could not imagine an, an action that... That Bob Mueller might actually do that would cause him to fire Bob Mueller. And so I think on that, yeah, he, right, he gave a reasonable articulation. But then on these other issues, right, so he says he wants to make the report, um, he wants to be as transparent as possible. He wants to share as much of the report with Congress and the public as, as is possible, consistent with the regulations. So consistent with the regulations is the whole ballgame, right, how like, you read the regulations. Right. Do you read them narrowly? Do you, need, do you read them, uh, you know, broadly, right? And so they, there was no, f- no real follow-up. And I, I thought a similar sort of thing played out with the, um, you know, can the president offer pardons in order to prevent someone from testifying? And he said, well, uh, you know, no, it would be a crime if it was a quid pro quo, well, that's a really, really narrow theory, right? We've already seen the president dangling pardons in public. The notion that you would need a quid pro quo, this incredibly narrow, I think the narrowest possible definition uh, by which you could say it's a crime unless you're, you're somebody who just takes the position that the president can't commit a crime by offering a pardon any in any circumstances. And so I think in, in sort of in in a dozen different instances, whether it was about the jurisdictional limits of uh, of the probe, he, he really kind of carved out these giant you know loopholes and and nobody was there to hold his feet to the fire on it
1: so right so he did not make commitments he or where he did make them he made them within a fairly narrow scope right but I guess I'm trying to figure out like where does the blame lie on the senate's side for not as you said holding his feet to the fire do you think that it's because Democratic senators or others on the committee with an interest in this didn't do their homework? Is it because they actually just don't understand this stuff? Um, or is it because they had a different prior like they were going for an optic or a soundbite rather than something substantively meaningful? Or is it because they didn't coordinate with one another and so they didn't use their time well enough? to pin him down, which takes time.
2: So I I don't know which of those things it is. I think a little bit it was coming to the hearing with the wrong premise, right? The, I think what we saw was a hearing that was sort of designed at kind of taking shots at Bar, right? Trying to undermine sort of the public faith, uh, right? Or, or say, maybe that's an unfair way to, to characterize it, but right, trying to sort of say this this person is not necessarily suited to be the attorney general, use it as an opportunity to take shots at the president. Actually, I think they had a really, really practical and important task in front of them. And that was to get specific Detailed reassurances from the person who we all know is going to be confirmed, Attorney General of the United States, about how he would act in particular circumstances, about his his understanding of particular rules and regulations and the obligations of his office in a way that is essentially intended to, to tie him down to it, right, to, to hold him to it later when that moment sort of arises. And I think that in some areas they did a good job on that because they're really, really focused on it, like, thou shall not fire a bomb. Mueller, but on the other areas that are that are really important and really substantive, they just they asked the initial question. He gave the ambiguous answer. And it, with, you know, one or two exceptions, mostly they just kind of moved on to the next thing. And I, I don't know why that is.
0: I wonder, too, if they're just so unused to having a reasonable candidate that's not terribly, terribly politically divisive before them. And they kind of felt like it was falling back into like a hearing in normal times. Yeah. And, th- and there was a part of me, too, watching them thinking. They seem to all be wagering that Bill Barr, and this may be a smart wager, is not going to risk forever harming his reputation by going in and doing just the political bidding of the president, that this That's is a guy. such an
1: old-fashioned assumption. But it
0: all felt it's, that way, didn't right. it? Yeah. Like, they're Like, oh, he's a good man. He'll do the right thing. And maybe yeah. he will. But to your point, Susan, too, it's like. You may have also, Senator Democrats may have missed the opportunity to get him to say 87 different ways, I will do X, Y, and Z.
2: The other thing is to have someone who comes in talking about his commitment to the Department of Justice and the rule of law and not ask him about the fact that the day before the president of the United States had suggested that the father of somebody who was cooperating against him, Michael Cohen, his former attorney, should be investigated in retaliation for his son testifying and cooperating against the president the most uh, sort of flagrant blatant possible abuse of power antithetical to every sort of you know uh, uh value that the department should hold hold dear and like it didn't even get brought up right we didn't even have time to get to that they didn't, that they, didn't they didn't embarrass him they could, yeah, have,
0: they could have they, they could the, have the fact that they could have embarrassed him also just makes me wonder because these are smart people of whether they think they've got him on sides
1: or they want to try and get him on sides. Yeah. I mean. Well, then they
2: are as foolish as he is in assuming that he's the person that can come yeah. in and fix it all. Right.
0: Wow. We're all just moving through a haze. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to some even more um, rational things that happened last week. Um, oh my not God. really. Uh, no, so God. the New York Times on Saturday, I think it was, uh, came out with a big story, uh, or was it Friday? It was Friday, Friday night. It was Friday night. Friday night came time out. Time is
2: a flat circle. Time shame. is a flat
0: circle. <laughs> it I remember because it came across as I was having dinner, and I was like, "Oh, this is going to ruin a lot of nights."
2: <laughs> You're uh, like, "But not my night."
0: <laughs> uh, no comment. Uh, the The upshot of this story is, that, of course, that the FBI, after the president fired FBI Director Jim Comey began to wonder whether or not he was wittingly or unwittingly acting as an agent of Russia, and if this was somehow an attempt to obstruct the Russia probe by getting rid of the man who was at that point overseeing it and sort of decapitating the bureau, which led the FBI to open up a counterintelligence investigation. Uh, I think we all started learning the word subfile. Which if I guess that's if indeed
1: that's what it was, if that's which really what it was, we don't we're not actually sure. know.
0: Um, but this sort of helped, I kind of reorient our understanding. I think of the Mueller probe insofar as we've often talked about it as a probe of Russian interference and possible conspiracy with the campaign, and a parallel track of obstruction of justice and firing Jim Comey. Which, back to the bar point, was always, I guess, at the root was. Well, doesn't the president have the authority to fire the FBI director? So it kind of got wrapped up in this Article Two authorities question. But really, maybe the better way to think about it now we know is that the counterintelligence piece of it is the obstruction piece of it, and that the investigation sort of is more of on proceeding on one track. Anyway, that's it. Sort of, sort of reorients our understanding internally, and of course, is the kind of big eye-popping headline, which is, you know, that the president of the United States, the FBI, thought might be an agent of Russia. Uh, and then the next day, my colleague at the Post, Greg Miller, published a story that the president has gone to extraordinary lengths to conceal his meetings with Vladimir Putin.
1: The substance of his meetings. The
0: substance of his meetings, not the event, and not the fact of them. Uh, and one sort of, you know, uh, hair-raising example in the lead was when he was meeting with Putin in Hamburg, On the sidelines of a uh, a world leaders gathering there, he confiscated the notes of his interpreter and told the interpreter, don't say anything to anyone about what you heard here. Uh, And then the interpreter is then cornered by U.S. officials saying, what the hell went on in there? Where do you know? And allows only that the president said that uh, when Putin told him I didn't interfere in the elections, Trump said, I believe you. Mm. Um, So I think my thought on this was, I'm curious, you know, what you guys think that, we sort of knew or assumed a lot about some of these stories already, like the counterintelligence piece and the question of whether the president is working for Russia and obviously the fact that the president has met with Putin and there's not a lot known about what's gone in those meetings. But there was just so much new detail and it kind of brings, I thought, both these stories together into this very sharp clarity just how profoundly bizarre, unusual, and clearly to the FBI, at least very troubling, and even to President Trump's own advisors, his relationship with Putin is. Like, you know, to, to go back to Jim Baker's testimony uh, that was quoted in the New York Times story, it's about Russia. <laughs> it's always been about Russia. And I thought, Tammy, like these two stories just sort of nailed that right uh, home again, as if, as if we didn't already know it. But
1: Right and and I think in terms of the the long national nightmare of the last several years like it was a moment where all of a sudden the chaos came back into focus you know we've been deluged with corruption and self-dealing and you know process fouls and court cases and no nope, it's all about Russia you know if you hone in on the things that make this president behave in the most inexplicable manner. Like you cannot see his motivations. It's about Russia. And from the very beginning, you know, that Kushner and Kislyak discussed setting up a discrete channel outside the bounds of the U.S. government before the president was even inaugurated. So from the very moment of his election, he was seeking the ability to communicate directly with the Russians in a way that the rest of his own government that was working for him would not see the content of it. And that's that's bizarre. And you have to ask why. And so this is a moment when all of a sudden we are again focused on why, why does he do this? I also think it's important what you were saying about the the sort of common understanding of the Mueller investigation having two tracks a collusion track and an obstruction track I think that's a little bit of a Watergate framework applied to the present where you know Watergate's not the crime it's the cover-up and the obstruction was the cover-up and you know um, but if you think about it through the lens of Russia this investigation was um, instigated because of Russian interference in our election. If it's always been about Russia and the FBI has always viewed the investigation through the lens of Russia, then the the fact that this is all one thing makes a lot more sense. Um, because again, we ask why, why is the president so intent on interfering in this investigation of a foreign power trying to influence our politics? You know, what's going on there? And trying to understand what's the Russian role there? So, you know, I I think it was helpful in bringing things back into focus, but I don't think it gave us any new answers to those really, really crucial questions. There's really, there are really only two people who know the answers. One is President Trump and the other is Vladimir Putin. And I mean, speaking as, as someone who briefly was engaged in diplomacy on behalf of the United States government... The idea that you would have a meeting at any relatively senior level, but particularly at the head of state level, with a government that constantly engages in manipulation, disinformation, and just tricksiness about our bilateral relationship, that you wouldn't have other people in the room to protect you from them. I mean, that's standard, standard practice diplomatically for a variety of reasons, but with the Russians even more so. And so the fact that it's with the Russians and not with anybody else that he behaves this way is an even bigger problem from a national security perspective.
2: So I have a lot of questions about this story. And my questions are increasing as sort of time passes between the original sort of publication. So the first is what happened? Right. So they report that you know uh, according to this testimony the the FBI considered whether or not the president of the United States was himself a counterintelligence threat opened a counterintelligence subfile it's not entirely clear what actually happened it's not entirely clear the consequences of that decision. And so it's really hard to sort of, you know, a lot of people are sort of rushing in to talk about whether or not it was appropriate or inappropriate, as if something sort of like some concrete step was taken that there's an authorization needed for it. And there's too much sort of noise there, I, I think, to actually discern clearly enough. I do think, though, and this is sort of similar to Tammy's point, it does clarify the questions that were being asked. And that's that these steps are being taken. And the purpose of a counterintelligence investigation, unlike a criminal investigation when you're find, trying to figure out if somebody has committed a crime, the purpose of a counterintelligence investigation is to figure out sometimes why something is happening, right? So you somebody's taking some particular action, and you need to understand why are they the witting agent of a foreign power? Are they an unwitting agent? Have they fallen under some sort of you know? They don't understand. Uh, part of the role of the FBI is to give defensive briefings, right? Or, to or is it tell. just a coincidence? Right. Like, or is <laughs> or is it a totally innocent explanation? And so, I think that the the mere idea that the FBI was asking that question, the idea that that would be controversial, is crazy. Of course, they were asking that question. Everyone was asking that question, and I think that over the past couple of days, the thing that has crystallized for me is Sally Yates going to the White House after figuring out that Michael Flynn has lied to the Vice President and lied to the American people about making this phone call, uh, in which he said that to Sergey Kislyak, in which he said that he would um, that they they intended to lift sanctions. I I think that as Yates' testimony sort of made really clear at the time, she was viscerally afraid, right? They went to the White House because they were like, oh, my God, the national security advisor is now compromised. So the big looming question over this entire investigation is did Donald Trump tell Mike Mike Flynn to make that phone call? Did Donald Trump tell Flynn that they were going to lift sanctions? Did Donald Trump... Allow Mike Flynn to lie to the FBI? Did he allow Mike Flynn to lie to the American people? To lie to the Vice President, right? Are all the reasons that Sally Yates is concerned about Flynn just as applicable to the president? You know, and this is something that you know I just sort of to give to give credit to somebody who's been been pounding this drum for a long time, Marcy Wheeler, who um, I usually don't agree with on a lot of issues. I, I actually think that this event is something that sort of crystallizes the importance of that moment and the fact that that is kind of the big, giant, unanswered question here. It does raise really, really difficult constitutional questions about the role of the FBI and sort of a constitutional structure, whether or not anybody but the president is really allowed to determine what is in the national security interests of the United States for the executive branch. I do think, though, the notes story is related, and that's that this notion that under Article 2, the president and only the president decides for everyone what is in the best interest of the country for the purposes of of the executive branch, the idea that he's hiding it from everybody— right? He's hiding it from the American people. He's hiding it from Congress. He's hiding it from his own administration, right? Remember the early scandals when Flynn and Jared Kushner are trying to use Russian communications equipment so that they can talk to the Russians in ways that can't be monitored, right? This entire, the whole structural argument here is premised on this notion that Political accountability is going to be the appropriate check here, not the FBI checking the president, but the American people checking the president. Well, if the president is lying to the American people, they can't check him. Or another branch, the legislative branch, acting to check the president. Well, the legislative branch can't act to check the president if they don't know what's going on, if no one's investigating whether or not there's a threat here. And so while I understand and respect these sort of really careful constitutional arguments, the president of the United States has sort of turned it all in its head, right? And so I think continuing to try and come to it with this lens of how should we be understanding the appropriate roles and where a threat might might originate from, I just, I, I don't think that it works in a circumstance like this.
1: So I, I I think that's a really, really important point about the difference between constitutional accountability and political accountability. And you know, ideally in a functioning American democratic political system, we have both. (laughs) And right now it feels as though we are not able effectively to have either forms of accountability for this president in this moment because he is so prepared to conceal and to misrepresent and to lie. And so I find myself facing the question, you know, what do these disclosures mean politically, right? Russia is the one issue where we've seen, for example, Republicans in the Senate willing to buck the president from the very beginning of his administration to impose sanctions when he didn't want to impose sanctions, right? And so... Do these revelations further shake the confidence of Senate Republicans, make them more willing to separate themselves from the president or compel a a certain degree of accountability? On the House side, I don't know that it makes much difference. And then, you know, and then there is a political question that you raise, Susan, which is sort of if the American people elect their president on the assumption that he gets to decide what's in the national interest, but he does it for them. If we now have a question about whether he's actually doing it for them or whether he's doing it for Vladimir Putin, right, what, how how much can we expect the American people in this moment with a shutdown, with, you know, this massive immigration debate, with the economy starting to decline, how much are they even going to care?
2: I do think that this clarifies a little bit to sort of to unite it with the first segment on Bill Barr. To clarify the situation that the FBI, the Department of Justice, and others are in, and that's to sort of say, what are they supposed to do, right? So this happens. They really think that there's some chance that the president of the United States might be doing this, I don't know, because he's being blackmailed for some plainly illegitimate, really, really scary purpose. Are they supposed to sit on their hands? Like, what is what is supposed to happen here? And so I do think that... Whenever we look at somebody like Bill Barr, who people appear to feel very reassured by this notion that he's gonna do things by the book, he's gonna follow some set of rules. And I think, especially whenever you think about this moment, this moment being the same time in which Rod Rosenstein is like, maybe we should record the president and the Oval Office, all these crazy things are coming up. That whoever takes on the attorney general role, whoever occupies these roles, there's no book. There's no book that tells you what to do in these circumstances. It's never happened before. We never contemplated this occurring. And so these are these are moments in a situation in which extraordinary exercises of judgment are going to need to be made, certainly have been made in the past and likely will in the future. And so that's why in my gut, people who are sort of pointing to Bill Barr as this guy who's going to play by the rules, play by the book, just isn't satisfying because I, I think that at the end of the day, like there's nothing, there's no book, there's nothing to look to. You
0: know, Just to bring it back to these two stories as we're wrapping this up, one thing that I think often happens certainly with reporters and I think all of us that, you know, follow this story in minute detail and the drip, drip, drip and we're constantly grabbing all the drops is, you know, we don't always step back and take a look at what does this all mean and what does it add up to and both these stories do that. I mean, Tammy, to your point. You know, I've long thought that the way that the American people are going to be, you know, persuaded one way or the other, what this all adds up to is going to be whether Bob Mueller delivers a narrative mm-hmm. and says, like, in a concise, perhaps you know, uh, many many pages, but in a forceful, framed kind of way, here's what went on. And I think that honestly, we're at the point we've asked so many questions about what these interactions add up to that I wonder if the one that we ultimately are just going to have to come back to is the one that the FBI was raising. In 2017, and as extraordinary as it is, Occam's razor starts to take over. And at some point, the question is is the president of the United States an agent of Russia?
2: I also think that Winning or otherwise. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly right. And I think it raises another scary possibility about the reason why Bill Barr has been selected to, to be the AG, uh, you know, either uh, not just, not despite his relationship, his close relationship with Robert Mueller, but potentially because of it, that this is somebody who potentially can come in and actually persuade Mueller that his role, that his obligation is not to provide precisely that narrative, that actually this is not about whether or not he's going to give Mueller the distance to do his job. It's about putting someone in there that actually is someone uh, who can credibly, uh, you know, persuade and argue within the law, within a language that Mueller is going to recognize and understand uh, that he should not and and, uh, is not permitted to, under the rules, deliver precisely the kind of narrative document that actually might have some political ramifications.
0: Wow. Bill Barr, your moment in history... Is upon you.
1: How are you going to play it, man?
0: Wow. All right. We shall see. Um, and and speaking if, of Russia and things that Russia wants,
1: <laughs> As, and if we weren't sober enough yet. So, if the President of the United States was a winning agent of Russia, <laughs> what would Putin
0: one. want him to do? <laughs> Maybe, let's see, pull out of NATO.
2: Just right at the top of the list. Yeah. Top of the
0: list. Could Just you do that? number one? one. Could Just you do an that? idea. Well, According to the New York Times, and I'll read from the story here, senior administration officials told the New York Times that several times over the course of 2018, Mr. Trump privately said he wanted to withdraw from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Current and formal officials who, former officials who support the alliance said they feared Mr. Trump could return to his threat as allied military spending continued to lag behind the goals that the president had set. So he's constantly talked about how our allies don't pay, pay their fair share. This story is saying that on multiple occasions, the president said he wanted out of nato and and at least in 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 some instances looks like he may have held this out as a kind of retaliatory measure to use against allies who i guess he thinks are deadbeats so you know tammy kind of along the lines of there are things that we already knew but this sort of crystallizes things we knew that trump was hostile hostile to nato Um, Famously, he spoke at the new NATO headquarters and he would not affirm Article 5, which is the collective defense obligation under the treaty, which has only been triggered one time when the United States was attacked on 9-11. What more have we learned, do you think, from this story that Trump – the fact that Trump discussed several times that he wanted out and what do we make of the fact that at least so far he hasn't gotten his way?
1: Right. So I I think that you can think about this story in the context of the Russia stuff that we were just describing, in which case it gets really terrifying because it opens the possibility that for the sake of the Russians or as part of some kind of unrevealed agreement President Trump is going to pull the United States out of NATO in order to benefit the Russians somehow. But I think that that's only one way to think about this. The other way to think about this is that Trump's mistrust of American alliance commitments and the deployment of American forces in Europe and also in East Asia and the Korean Peninsula and elsewhere is this is a really, really long standing theme in his commentary on foreign affairs over many years. If you go back to the piece that my colleague Tom Wright wrote, where he dug into Trump's statements on foreign policy from years before Trump ever talked about running for president, mistrust of NATO and frustration with NATO is a long standing theme. The newer Uh, frame around this theme, the one that Trump has hammered so much that it's become a sort of mantra in American public discourse on NATO is they're not paying their fair share. Like the reason I'm mad at them is because they're not paying their fair share. And that's part of a broader theme for Trump when he wants to persuade Americans of foreign policy issues. He says, we are being played for fools. We are being taken advantage of. He does it again and again on alliances, on trade relationships and so on. And so he's doing it with NATO also. But his mistrust of NATO predates any concern about, you know, spending levels and and per- percentages of GDP. He probably had never heard about how much European countries spent on uh, defense out of their GDP before he ran for president. So I, I do think we have to think about it in the context of longstanding prejudice. And that should worry us, too, a lot, because we have seen him act on other prejudices or instincts or that he brought into the oval office whether it's the travel ban or withdrawal from Syria or withdrawal from Afghanistan, which he's now um, getting ready to implement. And so there's no reason to think that over time he won't actually seek to carry out his intentions here as well. And when you add to that Jim Mattis's resignation letter, like go back and read that resignation letter again today in light of this NATO story. And, you know, we were all thinking about it at the time in terms of the Syria withdrawal, which I said then seemed like a a rather small thing to push Jim Mattis over the edge to resignation. But if you think about it in the the context of the NATO story, and you look at Mattis's words about being true to our allies and needing to hold to our allies for our own sake, as well as for moral and, and so on reasons, honor reasons, Mattis's letter looks very different. And so it makes me concerned like, Okay, it's not just that he's mentioned this several times. He's mentioned it enough that his defense secretary resigned with a warning to the world and to the American public about this issue. And now that defense secretary is gone. And, you know, so yet another person within the system who would seek to resist this and was willing to resign over it is gone. And so Trump is now unbound and so, you know, do I think he's going to do it tomorrow? No. Do I think it's going away? No. And, you know, having conversations with other foreign policy folks, and I'll I'll end on this, over the last couple of days since the story came out, like, okay, when Trump came into office, we've had conversations around this table so many times. And I've said, like, no, I'm an institutionalist. I believe in the strength of our democratic institutions. Like, this is a manifestation of things that are wrong with our democracy, but we can, you know, we can get through it. This story worries me in terms of the long-term consequences for the peace of the world. Because the reason that we haven't had a major war on the European continent in the last 70 years is because of NATO, right? And if we pull out of NATO, NATO falls apart. We're not just the linchpin. We, We are the whole architecture. We are the logic. We're the driver. We're the thing that holds it together. And I do really worry, not about this year or next year or the year after, but I worry that if he even says that we're going to pull out of NATO, it begins a process that over time leads us to another European continental war.
2: So I have a lot of thoughts on that, although mostly questions, I guess. My first one is, where the hell is Jim Mattis? So he drops his resignation letter and walks out the door and rides off into the sunset. You know, or pe- these he, are the stakes. Here, his
0: people are leaking. That's right? what I think. He's but if, doing. well, right. <laughs> but Which, if these but are the stakes. He could stand up and talk, couldn't he?
2: There, right? I don't think nine. there is a single thing that would be more powerful than Jim Mattis going before Congress. Jim Mattis giving a serious interview. There is nothing in his obligation, in his oath, if en- any you part of think the law there's like, that uh... would prevent him from from disclosing large parts of his conversations as de- as Secretary of Defense. Now, maybe not direct conversations with the president, but certainly policy disagreements. Certainly, he could be you know giving a very very strong voice to this stuff. And so, I do think that it's remarkable that he's sort of gone entirely silent, as if he's sort of like, well, I tried and I wrote that that kind of ominous letter. So I guess figure it out. You're looking at me skeptically as if you think that that's more. No,
1: no. I'm just wondering whether you think that um, the impact of such an intervention would might be blunted by his doing it so soon. Like, don't you think that there's some some amount of dignified silence that actually lends credibility to the warning when he when and if he does finally come forward. But, if you know, walking out the door and then going on 60 minutes the next day kind of thing would be a sour grapes more than a substantive... Morning. I guess,
2: although if you want to underscore the impact of your resignation, if you want to make it this moment, now I guess maybe yes, if he does ultimately decide to make the you know real substantive public public comments and actually do this eventually, then it's just a question of sort of the strategic weight. But we haven't seen any indication okay. of sort of wanting point. to do that. And so if he doesn't do it, I do think that's a misstep. Look, I think that there are very very serious questions about whether or not Trump even has the legal capacity to unilaterally withdraw from NATO. So I, I think that to the extent that there's um, any comfort here, it's that this it does appear to be one of the areas in which he has sort of this longstanding instinct that doesn't really comport with law. And so he's not someone who's a particularly, is particularly agile in sort of circumventing those, uh, those hurdles. And I think that's, that's particularly true in this case, when he has no natural allies or constituencies within the administration, within any part of government. And, Tammy, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the travel ban, there's Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and Ann Coulter. right? There's a group of people. All these crazy ideas, even withdrawing from Syria, even withdrawing from Afghanistan, there's some group of people that thinks that's a good idea. Now, maybe they would have done it in a different way, but right, he has people who are sort of um, feeding those instincts, is there anyone other than the president who thinks withdrawing from NATO is a good idea?
1: OK, the the border wall wasn't his long standing idea. It was one that was fed to him. The travel ban, the same thing. Hating NATO is something he's held on to for a long time. He doesn't. So it's not like he needs to be goaded into it by Fox News commentators. But I don't mean goaded into it.
2: I mean led through it. Right. So he has these instincts. Other people are able to sort of channel those instincts into actual action. And so if there is no one else who agrees on this, this does seem like an area in which he actually doesn't have the capacity to maneuver. So first of all,
1: Stephen Miller does agree with him on this. And Stephen Miller is still sitting in the White House and very actively engaged on this stuff. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think there's a different functioning of that same ecosystem in an instance like this, which is that he's been pounding the table about NATO for a couple of years. And the Fox News and the right wing commentary ecosystem is echoing him. And supporting him and adding, you know, anecdotal evidence on behalf of his arguments or whatever. And so that feedback loop is effectively the same in function as as what you're describing in these other instances.
2: So I think that there's so I
1: they lead each other down the garden path without even realizing it. And then boop, they're over the cliff to mix a metaphor.
0: I
2: think then the one... It's a
0: cliff on a garden on a cliff. (laughs) It's a (laughs) cliff garden.
2: Yeah. If I I can't even sort of hold on to that as my like sole source of comfort, I think there's one other place that I'm sort of vesting hope and comfort. And that's... Please. um, We are this week past the halfway mark of President Trump's first term, right? This is more than halfway over. Still got a long way to go. And I think that... The work of restoring and repairing some of the things that Trump has broken is actually not going to start at the beginning of the next presidential administration. It's going to start at the beginning of presidential campaigning in earnest. Because we are going to have lots of different actors from across the political spectrum, including likely a Republican primary challenge, that are now going to come forward and give voice to the foreign policy beliefs of the American people and sort of make their pitch. And so I do think that there's going to start to be a message to allies and to the American people of, we just have to wait this person out. And the next person to come in is going to restore this stuff. We we still do believe in this. And so I have to... I have to believe, uh, unless there is some wildly popular candidate, and I suppose we could imagine somebody like Bernie Sanders sort of coming in and having certainly Tulsi Gabbard, who's now um, declared her ridiculous uh, um, candidacy. We'll be talking about that. In a <laughs> we'll future save episode. that for a later episode, <laughs> um, right? But but I do right. That's this is my this is my my like last. Tiny little flame of hope. Don't oh, extinguish it, Sam. I'm you not gonna so extinguish skeptical. it, but I but
1: I do think that when it comes to NATO and Europe and American defense commitments abroad, that is the weakest ground on which to stand. If you're an aspiring, you know, presidential candidate of either party. I mean, you know, go back to my home state and ask people what's NATO for? Why does NATO matter? You know, nine out of 10 Michiganders probably would not have an answer to that question that would satisfy them. They yeah, are certainly Americans not were. clamoring for, you know, their for their political leaders to go off and go and reclaim the mantle of American leadership on the European continent. They're just not. And so, like, what's the percentage for a presidential candidate to talk about it. And like, I would love to see the Munich Security Conference, which, you know, John McCain used to bring a big bipartisan delegation to every year. That's coming up in a few weeks. I would love to see a robust delegation of senators and congressmen of both parties, you know, with this great new Congress that we have going across the Atlantic and telling our European allies that what matters to you matters to us and your your health and safety and well-being and our health and safety and well-being are interlinked and we have to support each other. I would love that. But I actually think that most, you know, especially new members of Congress can't afford to take a trip like that abroad. Their constituents are going to look at them and be like, why aren't you here doing our business here?
0: All right let's move on to our business here with object
1: lessons.
0: <laughs> uh, should I go first? Sure. Okay. okay. So both of my interest of uh, – I've been revisiting actually lately sort of – I won't say like Cold War films of yore, but like old TV shows – older, like pre-9-11 uh, a film and TV show. I'm like rewatching The West Wing, which has been very satisfying.
1: Aww. It holds
0: up. Also, I love Aaron Sorkin, and I know it's not fashionable. I don't give a damn. I love I love Aaron Rob Sorkin. Lowe. I would watch him. He's so good in in West Wing. He really, really is. No, he's just so good. Richard Schiff is so good. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a great show. It's a complete fantasy, but it's, it's great. Susan's it.
1: laughing at me for liking I can't, Rob Lowe. No,
2: I one I I'm a big Rob Lowe fan. I just I actually haven't been able to watch it because it's like too painful Aww. to okay. even like think about um what like fictionally functioning government might be like.
0: <laughs> um, but in the spirit of that, which combined also with my desire to make sure my husband's um, pop culture education is fleshed out, because deep as his knowledge of Italian horror cinema may be.
2: And it is deep, and listeners. It is deep.
0: <laughs> it is deep. Um, there are some films you hadn't seen. One of which is Top Gun. So we watched it uh, the other day, and gotta say, uh, holds up as a great Cold War action movie. Uh, uh, the action sequences, which were you know done in the planes, and I had this Russian Mig, the Russian Mig's, it's still really, really impressive <laughs> volleyball. It's, it's really. But I just want to say, I had not seen this movie. In about 20 years. No. And I go back now. This is the gayest movie
1: ever
0: made. <laughs> it is all like, I mean, I granted, I saw it when I was 12 years old and like, you know, you're feeling funny in the volleyball scene <laughs> or whatever. And now I walk into it and I'm like, Jesus, this is a gay film. This is a movie about gay men in planes. <laughs> like, it's not even subtext. It's just a gay movie. And it's, when you now when I see it through... Wiser eyes.
1: <laughs> you know, it, i not. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary. Wait, did defi- Joe like it?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, it was fun. I mean, yeah, he wasn't like his movie. I mean, I saw that movie when I was a kid and wanted to go be like Fly F 14s. Okay, did it life.
1: make him think differently about Tom Cruise?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I doubt it. Yeah, I don't think so. But,
1: like, you ha- this is no. like, you have to experience Top
2: Gun Tom Cruise, like, early enough. You can't Because like, if go you back already know it.
1: creepy Scientology exactly. aged action yeah. hero Tom Cruise, then is it the doesn't movie work.
0: That, I mean, risky business. Then this, and then he's yeah. Tom Cruise. But in
1: risky business, he was still a kid.
0: Yeah, he was still a kid. Yeah. yeah but this is wow. I mean, Quentin yeah. Tarantino actually wrote a monologue about this subject, which I think is in the movie True Romance about how Top Gun <laughs> is a gay film. Holy crap! It's just incredible. mean I, I right, I'm mean, gonna
1: have to go look that. Up. I have
2: not rewatched go it in it. a long time. Go but watch my it. My recollection was not yeah, just, yeah, just
0: just on Netflix is to LGBT <laughs> film, it'll pop up. <laughs> All right, man. He'll be right there. Top Gun. Top
1: Gun.
0: Jeez. All right. Uh, Susan, you go to yours next?
2: I have one as well. Um, and this is a, my object lesson is an announcement. It's also a TV show. Uh, an announcement from Netflix, um, which has announced today <laughs> that Steve Carell, of office fame will star in a new workplace comedy series he created, with the uh, g- Office's Greg Daniels about the people tasked with creating a sixth branch of the armed services, the Space Force, entitled Space Force. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of the end of that Mel Brooks movie where they do a fake preview for Jews in, in Space. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
2: Anyway, it's either going to be amazing or I don't know what.
0: And is this real? It's like, it's actually a show or did they just do a fake trailer?
2: I mean, it came from the like, actual Netflix account. I suppose it could just be like a really funny prank, but like yeah. it right. appears to be a real announcement. Space Force. Space Force.
1: The show. <laughs>
0: a, li- a limited series engagement. Yeah,
1: I think it'd be pretty limited. <laughs> oh my
0: God. It's so good. <laughs> All right, damn.
1: All right, so keeping to our space theme, I saw in an Israeli newspaper last week, Shane, an interview that I flagged just for you. I know what this is gonna you be. Did. <laughs> it's an interview with the Israeli-American chair of the Harvard University Astronomy Department, Avi Loeb, talking about your favorite space object, yes. a muamua. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And it's this lengthy interview in which he defends his interpretation of this object as potentially being an alien probe. Definitely the alien probe. And he also talks at length about his view that once we piddling little humans get beyond the solar system – we are going to be like archaeologists finding just vast evidence of multiple dead alien civilizations. They're going to be all over the place. And I read this and I thought, Shane's going to be so excited. You might go join Space Force. I would join I Space Force. I literally read that and thought, God help Shane doesn't see that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> please don't let him be his object. Please. Uh,
1: but oh. maybe it'll be the thing to bring our globe together.
0: I hope so. We need something. I've maybe war- they'll
2: just blow us up and end it all. <laughs> okay, Either maybe way. We will be it's one fine. of the dead
0: alien civilizations. <laughs> you know? Stranger things can
2: happen. Sweet meteor of death. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a fine note to end the podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> Rational
0: Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare homepage. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review for us. Follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook by typing a name. I guess I don't, is it Facebook LGBT film? LGBT <laughs> gay top Gun movie. Rational gay. Security. Just go to the
2: internet. Write gay movies. And it'll pop right <laughs> up. <Top Gun. laughs>
0: Rational security and, and other LGBT cinema. <laughs> Oh, my God. Our long-suffering audio engineer this week is Matthew God. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Bill Barr and his new band, Clear as a Bell. Uh, it's a 72-piece brass band that plays three different songs all at the same time in different time signatures.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it.
0: <laughs> it's whatever tune you want it to be.
1: It's like free time. Okay.
0: It does not have piano, but if it did, Sophia Yan yeah, would definitely not play. No way. <laughs> On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittis, you're out there someplace. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.
1: Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.